Neoliberalism, Globalization, Income Inequality, Poverty, and Resistance Written by Rev. Rinaldo C. McKenzie Narrated by Michael Scott Good morning, everyone. I'm here in uh, Long Branch, New Jersey, on the Jersey Shore. And, um, and today I want to share this episode of the neoliberal round, lifting up uh, the preface of the book Neoliberalism, Globalization, Income Inequality, Poverty and Resistance. Um, and it's written by me, Ronaldo McKenzie, but it's narrated by an amazing gentleman who is married to one wife and have a beautiful daughter. They reside in Massachusetts. He has done several work before with the ACX team. And, um, and he does an amazing job narrating this book. And so today we will share from the, uh, the preface of the book, Neoliberalism. And I hope you uh, find it interesting. And uh, listening on is my twin brother as well. Uh, Ricardo, you can say hello to pod, to the podcast audience. Hey, hi everyone. <laughs> That's my twin brother. We uh, he sounds just like me, just so you know. But um, so today we will be talking about uh, neoliberalism, and we're going to be beginning by sharing from the audiobook um, "Neoliberalism, Globalization, Income Inequality, Poverty, and Resistance," the preface, and. Um, Narrated, of course, by Mr. Michael Scott, who has an amazing and a beautiful voice. It pulls you in, and um, and I hope you guys go and get the uh, the audio book that's available on iTunes or on the Audible. Um, so here we go. Thank you so much, and enjoy. Preface. When we hear of Jamaica or the Caribbean, we think of beautiful islands of paradise with sun, sea and sand, reggae music, cannabis, and the Irie people like Usain Bolt. People who are living out their best dreams, desires, and lives. But this book analyzes this motif given the historical and current economic and political situation in Jamaica, in the Caribbean, and the Global South. In an attempt to escape the adverse realities of poverty, inequality, and injustice, the people of the Global South find themselves in North metropolises with very little agency and minimal change to their lives. In fact, except for the use of cleaning neoliberal waste, the immigrant is usually portrayed as an alien with three big heads and big sharp teeth, seeking to steal and destroy the profit and disrupt society. As such, we will discuss black, brown, and pan-African struggles for economic prosperity, justice, and freedom, and consider efforts, abilities, and inabilities to chart their own futures since decolonization and realize real political independence and economic prosperity. Perhaps they are charting their own course by the few corrupt of the status quo who are benefiting from partnerships with the neoliberal regime of the Washington Consensus, advocates of bureaucratic phenomenon while the masses are left behind. John Williamson, the inventor of the term Washington Consensus, believes the term has two quite different meanings. First is the meaning he gave the term, which involved consensus around a set of ten policy reforms which he believed were widely accepted as beneficial by economists. In the original formulation, these were 1. Fiscal discipline. 2. A redirection of public expenditure priorities towards fields offering both high economic returns and potential to improve income distribution, such as primary health care, primary education, and infrastructure. 3. Tax reform. 
to lower marginal rates and broaden the tax base. 4. Interest rate liberalization. 5. A competitive exchange rate. 6. Trade liberalization. 7. Liberalization of FDI inflows. 8. Privatization. 9. Deregulation, in the sense of abolishing barriers to entry and exit. And 10. Secure property rights. Second is the meaning the term has acquired. Market fundamentalism, or neoliberalism, laissez-faire, Reaganomics. Let us bash the state, the markets will resolve everything. For our examination, we will use the term in the latter, rather than the former common usage to denote the power dynamic at play in neoliberal globalization and neoliberalism. The approach will be interdisciplinary and comprehensive, drawing on various disciplines and experiences and going beyond Jamaica to consider the wider Caribbean and the dysphoria in the United States. It draws on past and present works on the subject and relies on readers' ability, knowledge, primary or secondary, and skills to challenge, critically analyze, and develop their own thinking within a Jamaican, Caribbean, its dysphoria, and or American context given this century's challenges and opportunities. This book is facilitatory as it provides another opportunity to holistically explore challenges, opportunities, and solutions to Caribbean and Pan-African problems so they can continue to develop and express their thoughts in a structured, creative way that is unique to them, one that will lead toward meaningful engagements and sustained improvements for them and their people's standard of living. The project is divided into two parts. Part A will examine whether Jamaica's inequality trends from the mid-1970s up to the beginning of the 21st century, where a consensus of the structural adjustment policies stipulated by the neoliberal technocrats of the Washington Consensus in Jamaica. The study does not only concern itself with Jamaica, but Jamaica provides a case and a context within which to engage the subject matter. We will attempt to do so by tracing the impact of structural adjustment on Jamaica's economy and the relationship to this on income inequality and poverty in Jamaica from 1960s to 2008, with updated 2020 figures. We will argue that given the premise, Jamaica presents a unique cause and effect scenario that continues to question the veracity and validity of premise that neoliberalism is the sine qua non of development. We will explore and compare Jamaica with other Caribbean contexts and consider situations that are similar to these contexts in the dysphoria in the United States, whose people in the inner cities are also reeling from the effects of neoliberal globalization. For consideration of this study, which began in 2010, I must admit that I am biased by my own experiences as a post-colonial man living in a post-industrial country or superpower in the USA. What voice do I have, if any, and what are the threats to that voice? We will consider Caribbean and Pan-African contexts and thinkers such as Fanon and his contemporaries who have questioned whether Jamaica and other Caribbean and former colonies and their people are free to external control and power. We will argue that this illusion of freedom comes from a dominant globalist worldview within which those in the global south find themselves competing not just for scarce benefits and spoils, but also against two dominant forces vying for control. East versus West, Marxist slash socialist ideology versus capitalist, Adam Smith, Kenyanism, free market principle. We will conclude by considering whether any lessons have been learned by Jamaica and explore alternatives and solutions. Part B will argue, given Jamaica's experience with neoliberal restructuring, that Jamaica, like many former colonies, is far from being independent. Since post-World War II, the Caribbean has undergone significant economic policy transformation. This has been the result of resurgence of liberalism and its new form of neoliberalism. In the 1980s, when the political right dominated U.S.-U.K. political landscape with the emergence of Reagan and Thatcher at the political helm, 
both promoted market deregulation and the expansion of neoliberal activities and ideologies in the global north-south. The fact is that decolonization and neoliberal globalization have deemed Jamaica's dependence on the new global elite of the Washington Consensus. We will explore how Fannin's ideas applied to the D and recolonization and neoliberal globalization experience of Jamaica. My own observations are oriented by my intent in the political economy of decolonization and neoliberal globalization. Further, we will consider the response to the processes of decolonization and globalization that have deepened the realities of the people of the Global South and the peoples in the diaspora. There have been hundreds of protests against the Washington Consensus and their lackeys since 1976 by the Global Justice Movement and recently the Black Lives Matter movement in America. Street protests and some degree of violence have been the main strategies of the group until recently. But are the resistance movements closer to achieving their aims? The effectiveness of the resistance will be determined by the extent to which they have realized actual power, demonstrated change in the desired direction. Essentially, we are interested in exploring, by virtue of good reason, whether actions of resistance have had any meaningful effect on the daily lives of the poor and marginalized people in countries like Jamaica and its dysphoria in the United States. How close is the global justice movement to achieving its demands, such as tax on speculative capital flows, radical education of developing world debt, poverty, food and water security, economic equality, and international justice and peace? Jeffrey Players observes that the movement is in no way closer to realizing its goals and that the International Monetary Fund, IMF, has made structural adjustment, say, sound nicer by calling it poverty reduction. Further, today almost half the world's population, over 3 billion people, lives on less than $2.50 American a day. The gross domestic product GDP of the 41 heavily indebted poor countries, 567 million people, is less than the wealth of the world's seven richest people combined. Poverty is virtually unchanged since 1981, and inequality remains unchecked and is rising. The middle or working class, whatever the designation for poor, wage-dependent classes of people, is shrinking, thereby creating a society of only rich and poor people. An observation shared by Marty Oppenheimer, former professor of sociology at the University of Pennsylvania, there is no middle class anymore. You are either part of the working class or the upper class. Moreover, there have been significant decline in, in the membership and viewership of the resistance of global justice movements since their inception. There have been several failed events, and the aforementioned movements have been very reluctant in responding to injustice and new strategies of neoliberal exploitation. We will critique the work of nationalists to bring about political independence and equality within and among nations and peoples of the global south, including those in the diaspora. For when nationalists speak in the name of the working class, they leave the impression of promoting a working class political agenda. However, their project does not sway from elitism, and they never see beyond capitalism. They may imagine ways to reduce foreign penetration, domination, and what passes for cultural imperialism. However, this stance reinforces capitalist class relations and bourgeois ideology, while it fails to benefit the working class in any fundamental way. We will explore these limitations and consider possible alternatives. We will conclude this section by discussing the recent Black Lives Matter BLM protests in American cities against economic discrimination and police violence and lift up some stories that resulted from that recent event. We will include some discourse that emanated from the BLM protests for our examination on neoliberalism, globalization, income inequality, poverty, and resistance. Finally, we will conclude with two essays that explore resistance through cinema, cinema and globalization. The recent BLM protests and the history of global justice movements have been met with fierce opposition, even by their own citizens and peoples, albeit of a different class, race, or geographic region. 
This continues to reveal the ease of blinding people to neoliberal globalization's harsh effects. Human suffering is invisible to the human eye, and cinema has been used to tell the truth about globalization to the unsuspecting Westerner and to move people to act differently towards their plight, to consider deeply our human condition and position. We will examine and analyze two notable films, Life and Debt and Dirty Pretty Things, that will situate and conclude our discussions in a cinematic view.